I got a call from someone about SNL, Saturday Night Live. It's actually very confusing that time in my life because, because in Living Color, the initial 13 was done. I got a AD job, a network AD job on America's Funniest Home Videos. And actually when the call for SNL came in and I left that job as a network AD to go work as a production supervisor on Saturday Night Live because I felt like that was going to further my career more than America's Funniest Home Videos. So I gave up like, I don't know, around $8,000 a month to go live in New York. Like that, the pay cut. But you kind of have to do what you have to do for your career. Those kind of sacrifices. I saw that as a sacrifice that would be important. You know, I will say that SNL did prove to be incredibly important for me in terms of what I learned about comedy, what I learned Mm -hmm. about live television. But I also met Chris Rock there. That relationship at SNL is why I got the Chris Rock show for HBO. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. All right, guys, episode 21 of Mentors on the Mic. This is actually the final episode of season one of Mentors on the Mic. Thank you guys so much for all of your support. I'm kicking this season off. I'm ending it with a bang. Linda Mendoza, this wonderful, badass director. She is a TV director, primarily of comedies. The resume for Linda is so extensive, okay? So she started off as a page at Metro Media Channel 11. She walks us through all of her jobs, who were her mentors, how Bernie Mac helped her transition into directing narrative. She has directed so many wonderful shows, and she she lists for us and explains some of her experiences working on like the fifth season of Scrubs and out that show, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine she worked on, The Mindy Project, The Good Place. If you pick a sitcom or a comedy, she has directed it. And she talks about this special that she is currently, is, is going to come out soon on Amazon, Yearly Departed. She is such a phenomenal woman with, I mean, so inspiring in so many ways. Her stories, she's just like, very, very casually just name drops in such an authentic way. It's not like a, you know, a name drop out of nowhere. She name drops these incredible people because she has worked closely with such incredible comedic legends, David Letterman, Robin Williams, Bernie Mac, Margaret Cho, Chris Rock, Tina Fey, Tiffany Haddish, Catherine Ryan. I mean, just the amount of people I could keep, Wanda Sykes, I could keep going. But I I just want to say I'm so grateful to have her on the show. Thank you, Jessica Schur, for connecting us. Got to give a shout out to Jessica. I really appreciate it. And thank you guys so much again for going on this journey with me. I'll be putting out bonus episodes and really cool content during my hiatus, and then we'll be back at it for season two. Without further ado, welcome. Linda Mendoza. 
All right. Welcome, Linda. Thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Michelle. Happy to be here. I'm so excited. So like always, I always like to start off with what was your first role in the entertainment industry? Well, actually, I was a page. I got a job as a page at Metro Media Channel 11 before it was owned by Fox. Started kind of like Kenneth from 30 Rock in the page department and worked my way up from there. I worked in the broadcast area because they you know, also had on air. So I ended up becoming the engineering scheduler. So I scheduled all the guys to roll the commercials, the TD, the video guys sound. I scheduled all the crews for, you know, one day at a time, different strokes. Um, wow. What else we were doing? Facts Life. Yeah, it was kind of fun. It was kind of an amazing time for me. Amazing. And so w- when you were doing all that, did you have aspirations? Did you know where you wanted to be? Did you know you wanted to direct or you just knew you wanted to be in the industry? You know, like, like most people, you know, I grew up really like loving television and movies, but I didn't go to school for that. So I actually went to school to be a sociologist. And um, so I think for me, it was always about baby steps. Like what's the next, what is that entry level position? And so I remember trying to get in as a writer's assistant because uh, Norman Lear's company had offices on the lot because he was doing so many of his shows there, right? Yeah. Strokes and all of that. And I had taken typing in high school but I failed the typing test by like 10 words a minute. Like you're supposed to do 85 and I did like 75. So I didn't get that job writer's assistant, uh, but I knew I wanted to get into production and just figure out what I did want to do. Um, so after a couple of years at this, uh, a friend of mine, one of the unit production managers had a very dear friend, Gail Mancuso, who is of course the multiple Emmy winner for Modern Family and what have you. She was leaving, she was working for a commercial director and getting a job as the script supervisor on Square Pegs. Oh. I know I'm dating us a long time. So I ended up going in to meet with the director she was working with at the production house. And we did commercials for like Robinson's May back in the day when they were one. We did commercials for uh, Toys R Us and Corningware. And so that's kind of where I really started to learn production. Wow. And so what were what were some of your responsibilities there in production? Oh, in the commercial world, yeah. well, it was like helping to set up the casting the casting calls. This is where my engineering scheduling came in handy because I was able to book the studios and book the trucks and the crew. And I was involved with uh, just coordinating music and graphics, getting the music from, you know, whoever the client was and then getting the graphics and moving them through the title company. And, you know, just kind of hands on everything. It was kind of amazing, actually. And I really started to take television classes kind of after that, because there was so much I realized I needed to learn. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, I just started to kind of like take some introductory classes. But honestly, at that point, I was learning so much more on the set and real life hands on. It became almost a mute point. And how long was that position total around? Oh, I was with him for a couple of years. Great. And, and then I, yeah. and then oh. I went from that job, like it really is about connections. Our, yes. our lighting designer on the commercials was going to work with Bruce Gowers, like who was pretty infamous director. He did the Bohemian Rhapsody video, you know, where yes. faces, super famous. Like, yes, he was kind of like the godfather of music videos, but he also did a light a lot of live multi-camera event stuff, music and stand-up comedy specials. And his wife 
got pregnant, who was his PA. Mm. And I went and I met him and he hired me on the spot. So I actually, you know, left the commercial production company, go work for him because it was such a great opportunity. Yeah. And so, and did you ever go back to doing commercial production or it really was? No. uh -uh. That was it. Yeah. That's what I noticed. That was my leaping off point to television. And and is that like a good leaping off point for people even now? Like if people wanted to start trying to be a director, is it, I feel like I hear a lot where that's sort of the start is they go into commercial first in some way, or is that not? I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I will tell you, I have crossed over with a lot of people like propaganda films back in the early days did mostly couples and music videos. And then Mm. they started doing episodic work. Got it. Um, So, I mean, the, and you know, a lot of people that did commercials started to do film and television. And I think that was more like the crossover, the higher end, Mm. but I mean, production, production, um, so you learn, you know, like what's a half apple and, you know, stupid things like that. that what is a half apple? The half apple. Okay. So an apple box that is, you know, a studio standard and you have a half apple, which is half the size, quarter mm-hmm. apple, and then what they call a pancake. So like if some like a little shorter, say like Tom that's, Cruise. Okay. <laughs> See, that's them. what I was thinking. I think an apple <laughs> box is that, right? And then I, but I never heard of a half apple or of a quarter apple. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, cause you just don't know how much you need to increase it. You know, a lot of times you're putting up, say you need to raise up a table. You might put that up like a quarter apple just to get it up in the frame or something. Okay. So now you're, you're sort of done with the commercial side, the commercial production. And so tell me about the next role, about this role that you got. What was next? Oh my gosh. It was like the biggest turning point in my life um, was getting to work with Bruce because Bruce was an English guy, English director who was pro diversity before it was cool to be pro diversity. Yeah. And he wanted to hire people of color. Like we, I remember once we were doing a show, it was like, we got to have at least one African-American cameraman. And if you don't hire Kenny Patterson, I'm not doing it. Wow. And he was really adamant. And um, so when I got this job with Bruce, it was for a really cool music show at, we shot at the Hollywood Palace called Rock of the 80s. And we shot Cindy Lauper, Culture Club, Spandau Ballet, Hancock. Like it was insane. The people that we shot on that show. It was so much fun, so exciting. And we did like 13 one hours. And then from there, I just went with Bruce everywhere. We did a ton of music shows. We did a lot of big comedy specials. Really, truly like changed my life. And I learned so much more from him than I would have ever learned in a school. I learned about editing. I learned about shot, you know, shot makers. I learned about timing and just so many, many things, special effects. Like the show I just did, it's called Yearly Departed. It's a special for Amazon. It's a comedy special. It's basically a variety show, variety comedy special. It's waiting for Guffman. Mm. It's very quirky and has a very interesting tone and not what you'd expect from a comedy show. And it's mainly it's set in a funeral parlor. Oh. We're, we're laying to rest the things we lost in 2020. Oh, it's wow. Really, yeah. So, but the thing is, because of COVID, 
everybody was hyper vigilant. Like nobody wanted to be in the room with anybody else. Right. So I had to create a series of lock offs and motion control shots to put everybody in the same room. So wow. it was actually really freaking cool. And all that to say, Bruce and I did a show called, called uh, Greater Tuna. And it was a play that was touring in the 80s. And it was these two guys from, from Texas that had written and performed in this little play. And it was just the two guys. And they play all of the characters in the show. Wow. All of so it, Bruce and I had to break that show down in such a clever, interesting way because we needed, you know, lock offs, things to put like if the two of them were on one side, like yeah. you do a lock off and then you have the split frame. So then you could put when there are other characters on the other side, put them in that same shot. Right. It was fascinating what I learned. And all of that I applied to year. Wow. Yeah. Do you find Bruce to be maybe one of your first or if not your first mentor in the industry? Yeah. I mean, Dick Burley was definitely a mentor. The the guy who I worked with at the commercial production company, he and himself, he himself was pretty iconic. Like he directed an early, early television. Like he did an old, old show called Space Patrol, where you actually see the strings of the planes going through the, not the planes, the spaceships and stuff. It was yeah. like insane. He did like the Rosemary Clooney hour. And oh, I mean, he was around like he was pretty much a um a star in his own right and taught me so much and was so patient and kind and so i really feel like dick was my first real mentor yeah and then bruce was the mentor that changed my life wow you know he did he gave me my first directing opportunity and what was really, what was that the first directing opportunity uh, it was on a little show called roundhouse it was on saturday nights on remember when nickelodeon had snick Saturday yes, night. I Nickelodeon. Do. Yes, I do. That's been probably your era. Yes. Actually, I'm assuming. Yeah. So, so the show that Bruce and I did called Roundhouse was a live sketch show with live music happening in the scene. Oh. It was so cool. And so I AD'd that for him and then um, gave me an opportunity to direct an episode, which was How really was that? How was that experience to direct for the first time? It was really great and nerve wracking. But it was great. And, and it was live, right? You said it was live? Well, it's live to tape. Live to tape. Okay. But yeah, still, not live know, on the air. Going on. Still live. Oh, yeah. Still oh, especially the people coming in and out and live music underneath and a lot of cueing. And yeah, it was really, it was actually quite cool. And how long were you sort of under, under Bruce's tutelage, if you will? Uh, for about 13 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell me what other projects you got to do with him. Oh my God. We did the video music awards. Yes. For, I saw that. Like I started as the product supervisor on that. And then I actually got to AD it for him. I started as his PA assistant. Right. Even things like getting him orange juice and gas in his car and getting his, getting his license renewed or whatever it was, you know, cause he's always a little spacey in his brilliance. <sighs> so I really took care of him in a way that you know, most assistants I don't think would have because I was also the script supervisor and also doing time code notes and going I to saw. editing with him. And, and you were also a script and continuity department for a couple things is right around that time as well, right? So I think for Roy well, Orson and Friends, The Black and White Night, I saw that you were a script and continuity. Yeah, I was basically, 
show. Yeah, I uh, I did a lot of those shows for Cinemax. Those that was part of the Cinemax session series. Gotcha. Bruce didn't do those. I okay. did it for other directors while my time with him. Mm-hmm. But when I finally got to AD for him, I, we I stayed for several years after that. Yeah, you know, I probably PA'd for about six and then AD'd for about seven. Okay. And so did you, um, AD firm when you uh, were working, you were an AD for six episodes of In Living Color. Was that around that? Oh, time? oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually right before I went to SNL. Um, oh. and I had, I had taken that staff job because Bruce was doing a bunch of different things and not working quite as much you know, like directors have ups and downs. Right. Right. So I got offered that job and I thought it would be just really good experience for me. Hmm. Also, I knew the producer quite well, Michael Peacock. I started as the production supervisor on In Living Color, and hmm. then they moved me to the post-AD position because they needed someone to start to cut the sketches. So I ended up doing that. And then it was kind of interesting because we, we did the first 13, and they weren't sure what was going to happen with the show. And in that time, I got a call from someone about SNL, Saturday Night Live. It's actually very confusing that time in my life because because in Living Color, the initial 13 was done. I got a AD job, a network AD job on America's Funniest Home Videos. And actually when the call for SNL came in and I left that job as a network AD to go work as a production supervisor on Saturday Night Live because I felt like that was going to further my career more than... America's Funniest Home Videos. I mean, I wanted to do more creative things than just that. Interesting. And so I did know by then that that was not a path that was that was going to be mine. So I gave up like, I don't know, around $8,000 a month to go live in New York. Like that, the pay cut. Wow. You know, but you kind of have to do what you have to do for your career. Those kind of sacrifices. I yeah. saw that as a sacrifice that would be important. And, you know, it's interesting because everybody does have their own path yeah. and we all learn different things, different ways. And, you know, I will say that SNL did prove to be incredibly important for me uh, in terms of what I learned about comedy, what I learned about live television. Um, but I also met Chris Rock there, you know, right. and, and you worked so- with him a lot. Yeah. I mean, that relationship at SNL is why I got the Chris Rock show for HBO. Oh, interesting. And that's really the honest to God, because he said to me, I remember you were one of the only ones that was always nice to me. Wow. (laughs) Or something like that. He's like, you were one of the nice ones or something like that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Now, during this whole time, I I was going to ask it later, but I think I I think I want to ask it now. I mean, how often do you feel like you saw people like you or even other women working around like similar jobs that you were doing? Oh, almost never. Wow. There was many times when I was the only female to come in on a season on several shows. It's so crazy. It's not, it's not surprising. It's just still bizarre to me that that's the case. So, so how did you it's feel? On those yeah, I know. Thankfully, thankfully. That's changed. really changed. Like it's ironic because in that change, like, because I was the person that filled those slots, you know, Latin female, 
Yes. Now, ironically, those jobs are going away from me, but I'm getting different kinds of opportunities. So everything always works out the way it's supposed to. Good. Yes. But I mean, how was it for you? When did it, when did it kind of hit you or did it always sort of be, was it always very visible or was there a moment where you were like, I'm the only one here that's a woman or I'm the only one here that, you know, checks these boxes or, or was it just, was it like a realization at some point or was it always just very prevalent or did you just stop thinking about it at some point? I have to tell you, I never, I, I never, I was surprised when people said you were the first woman on first woman director we've had this season. Right. That surprised me. Yeah. But I never really thought about it that much because I grew up when it was still such a man's world. Do you know what I'm saying? I didn't really kind of put it together. I feel like I had more discrimination Mm. for me in terms of my work in variety. Okay. Oh, how can she do narrative? You know what I'm saying? She doesn't understand writing and character, which is true for a lot of those people. But what those were the kinds of classes that I took, like scene study and acting and things like that to learn that side of the craft more. Like I've been in and out of school. Like when I started directing, I really started to hone down on some different types of classes. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I mean, I spoke to another director. He's obviously he's white and he's, you know, a male, obviously. So, but he was telling me that it was difficult for him to get out of the like light comedy realm and enter something else because you know he feels like it's very easy to sort of typecast people even even directors as like this is what you do and we're not going to be able to trust you maybe with something else just now no question it totally is like like it's particularly like that for here's the genres multi-camera or single Mm -hmm. camera okay right or half hour narrative or one hour drama you know, a lot of times they only want like those drama directors, those procedural directors, because they know how to get that stuff done fast. They the elements they need, like me as a comedy director going into a show like that, it would require so much work, so much homework. And no matter what job you go on to, it requires work and homework. Because if you're Absolutely. going on to a new show, you got to see what is the style? Who are exactly. the characters? What's the tone of that show? But I'm just saying for me, a one hour, that would be like insane what I have to learn. Plus, I don't like doing one hours. I like comedy. I like going to work and laughing. I'm glad because I mean, A, because you've just done so much of that. So not only is it like a strength of yours, but I'm glad you enjoy it. You know, Oh, I love it more than anything. And the thing is, it's like my comedy experience is vast. We, Bruce and I did specials for Richard Lewis and Robin Williams at the Met and, you know, like... I went to Bosco with Billy Crystal and, you know, it, it's kind of like I've had so much background in stand up and then I had so much background sketch. Right. You know, and in one person shows, we did a lot of one person shows, you know, like Martin Short was a one person show. Billy Crystal was for the most Rowan Atkinson. Um I mean, just, uh, yeah, I mean, you've ton. worked with a ton of comedians. I mean, everything you've done, I mean, not even just the shows like the Chris Rock show and the Bernie Mac show, but just all the TV specials, like all the way from Sinbad to Tiffany Haddish, you know, it's just, you've just done so many of those. It's obviously a strength of yours, but I'm glad, you know, you also really enjoy it. How do you, how is directing like a comedy special different than anything else? Well, I mean, the thing is the comedy special doesn't stop for pickups. 
you have to really catch everything in the moment. Right. So it's really about knowing those sets and, oh, she's going to cross on this line. So you have to let the camera operator, you know, she's going to cross camera left or stage right or whatever the dialogue is, you know, so make sure you're getting, you know, like you're set for that cross and like, let's get the foot stomping. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen live in the moment. You know what I mean? The Wanda Sykes special is a great example of having to capture those moments. Yeah. Which I really, I'm so proud of that show and how it looked and, and Wanda was so brilliant in it. I mean, it was one of her best written shows ever, forever. And a lot of stuff started taking off for her again after that, I think. Yeah. Not that she's not always working, yeah. but I think her phone did start ringing a lot more. Yeah. And if for those type of specials, you do have to, I mean, am I mistaken? You have to usually do one or two or three performances that are recorded. Is, is it an amalgamation of multiple, multiple performances or is yeah, it just usually, one? No, usually it's two. Okay. You, know, you shoot like a, you know, you shoot two because you know, you know, you have one in the can. Right. Then if you have that in the can, then you can have a fun one. Or if you didn't get it in the can, then you have a chance to pick those things up. Right. Right. So, and it's always good because depending on the audience, like one night it can be stronger. Right. You can miss a setup or whatever that is. So, absolutely. Yeah. And you also so, have to get audience reactions. I mean, you often see in comedy specials, there are moments where you turn, you pan to the audience, you see them laughing. And it's part of the special, right? I mean, a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's funny you say that because that's actually one of my pet peeves the audience cutaways. Yeah. Like, I like to make it work with the performer in the frame. You know, like like either something across to them or tied on their back across the audience on their faces. I hate going to audience cutaways. A story, Bruce and I were in editing for Robin Williams. And Robin had insisted on having this cup of Coca-Cola on stage with him. And he's so manic. Yeah. Like we knew that cup was going to be jumping from side to side, show to show. It all became about wiping out the cup. (laughs) <laughs> it was so funny. And so what happened was I in my naivety, because this was like or like late 80, when did we do that? 87, 88? Can't even remember. But anyway, it was so because I said to Bruce and David Steinberg, who was Robin's, you know, like manager and the executive producer of the show, it's like, well, why don't we just cut to an audience? And they both looked at me and laughed so hard. Like, that's such a cheat. So I learned from those guys, like, it's cheating when you go to an audience, make it work without it. Some people like to have the audience in it. Some performers need the audience. You know what I mean? It just depends. But that is one of my pet peeves, ironically. (laughs) Oh, great. Well, it's good to know because I'll now start to watch some of them and be like, oh, you know. Listen for the edits. Listen for the edits. <laughs> yeah. And how about just, you know, it's a little bit different, but the, like the Mark Twain specials, you've done a few of them, right? Tina Fey. Oh, Murray, yeah. Oh, yeah. How do you approach something like that? Because it's similar, but different. Because It so is. And that's, parts. that's more of an event type of thing where you have a real, not that you don't have real openings on everything else. You know what I mean? But that different. is, a, that is a little different. And honestly, that, believe it or not, is one of the easier kinds of shows to do because the yeah. entrances are pretty straightforward. And you know what I'm saying? That was pretty much a straightforward show. I wish we could have done more with that. Like we tried to do some cool things with each show, either do a sketch or a cool song or like, I remember when Margaret show was on for Carlin, like we set her up in like what his, cause he, he had a, a storage room full of stuff. 
you know, full of his memorabilia and things like that. And so we did a, like a little thing where she like imagines what it would be like going through all George's things, you know, like, so that was kind of, that was pretty cool. And we did something really cool with Dick Gregory once. And, you know, we tried to set up little scenarios, uh, but that was more straightforward than anything. And it's just an honor to be on those types of shows. Like Bill Murray is a freaking hoot. I mean, oh my God. He's in a class in of itself, you know? Oh, he's, he's the most unusually brilliant human I think I've ever seen in my life. Like when he came for his rehearsal, it was kind of cute because, you know, we have a stand in this woman who works at the Kennedy Center and we hire her as a stand in every year. And she was up for lighting and different things. Yeah. And he just went up there and chitty chatted with her for like a half hour. Huh. It was the cutest doggone thing ever. Really, it was so funny. And for Letterman, they were tr- we were staging this piece. I don't know if you saw Letterman where he comes out of the smoke. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it was hilarious because I like had such an idea of like how this needed to go, and I was in the truck working out something, and they had taken Bill down, and the and the producers are trying to tell him. And one producer tells him one thing, and the no, no, this is actually what she's thinking. And so I'm finally able, it's like, you guys, I'm coming to the floor, coming to the floor. So I get there and it's like, okay, let's talk about Bill Murray says, great, because what we need is one more person to tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Bill, here's the thing. I'm directing. I'm the only person. I'm the most important person to tell you what to do. He's like, okay, lay it on me. (laughs) And it was so freaking cute. And then he was adorable after the show came up. It goes, gives me a little arm push. We did it, huh? Oh my God. I was dying. It's, you know, it's great with those types of things because you really have had exposure to some of the funniest people alive right now. And they're all different. Like you can't compare, you know, Wanda Sykes to Catherine Ryan to David Letterman to Chris Rock, you know, I mean, Tina Fey, like there's just so many people and you think to yourself, they're they're all their own brand of comedy, which they truly sort of developed on their own. It's a reflection of who they are, you know, very much her comedy is a reflection of who they are. And it comes out, same with Chris Rock. It's almost like an effortless kind of comedy with him in a way. It seems effortless. I'm sure it probably requires a lot more effort. Now, when we, we were at SNL, he was out every night doing stand up, and even when we were doing the Chris Rock show for HBO, he was going and doing sets. Wow. Sorry to interrupt, but I just no. didn't want to forget that thought because he's so dedicated to his craft. Chris is a real craftsman with stand-up. Yeah. It does seem natural because he's so freaking good and yeah. he's so smart. But I will tell you, since SNL, he has worked on his craft. It's kind of amazing to see. It's amazing. I Yeah, I, I just... I admire the fact that you've really had that front row seat to all of these incredible comedy legends and just being yeah. able to, is there anything you've noticed about just these comedians and, you know, sort of watching them up close and their process and their ability to come up with material as they go? Like, how does that from your lens, just seeing so many different people who are so good at their own individual comedy? All I can tell you is I'm just constantly in awe. It really is. I have such an amazing, like, appreciation of what they do and how they do it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it really is a phenomenon to me. And I'm never surprised, really. You know, like Wanda, like saying that was her, one of her 
probably her best written show ever. It's not a surprise. Yeah. It's just so joyful to see. Yeah. And I love stand up. I love process. Like I really, truly do. When I was trying to turn on the writing part of my brain, I was probably having a little bit of a midlife crisis too. What am I going to do? Because like I was saying, like a lot of my jobs were going away to other people because all of a sudden I was the replaceable one. It's like, I need to figure out what's going to be my next step. Yeah. And I thought, okay, let me turn on the writing part of my brain. And I had taken screenwriting classes and other things, but I took a stand-up class mm. because that's what I knew. And I understood that structure. Yeah. So at, at our showcase, I got booked at the comedy store in the belly room to do an actual real set on a comedy stage. I started doing shows at the comedy store. Like I went from the belly room to the main room, the original room. But I realized like, I'm not going to be able to do anything with that because I'm not going to go on the road and become a middle for 150 bucks a night when I'm a working television director. Right. So I will say though, that that really helps the creative process and getting movie scripts and thinking about those on a deeper level. Mm. Because I'm starting to do a lot of like movie scripts and, and all of those things are paying off by me really having a clear understanding of what's driving story and character mm. and all of that. Right. Well, so that leads me a little to my next question, which is obviously you've been doing, you've been doing this in and of itself for a long time, but specifically with these comedy specials and these sketch shows, there's obviously an expertise that comes with it. But what do you think that, what do you think that you provide? Like what makes you unique and how you approach these that you feel like just works well? Obviously, you know, a lot of these comedy specials have hired you as the director. What do you think you offer? Like what, what makes it like, what's the strength that you provide or what, what about you? I think, sorry, I'm, I'm really losing the question. It's there. (laughs) I know it's there. It's good. It it, it does. (laughs) It's not a hard question at all. I, I think what I bring to the table is that I always get things as a complete whole. Mm. Like I look at what is the tone of her show or his show? What is that look, the lighting? I really pay attention to lighting and set and setting the environment. Yeah. And I really do pay a lot of attention to the moments that you want to capture within their show. Like right. when do you need to be on that close up? When do you want to be there and do a little push to accentuate? So I think I always go the extra mile in terms of production. Yes. And then I feel like the other thing I bring is patience and support. Very supportive director. Actors, most talent really enjoy working with me because I give them space to do what they do. Mm. I can say, you know, that's funny when you do that. Maybe that's one step too far. Yes. And they're like, okay, let me try that. And would this be funnier if you did this more like a little flat? You know, like I give them the the range to do what they want to do. And then I can offer suggestions. Like with Bernie, I remember like oftentimes, and even with Chris, like when we were shooting those little parodies and things like that, I would offer a pitch and they'd either say, yeah, that's good. Or no, I don't think I would do that. And that's cool. I mean, that's valid. You know what I mean? So yeah. So I think some of the things that I bring support, kindness, patience, understanding of what we're trying to accomplish Yeah. in terms of look and style cameras and all of, you know, I look at the big picture and then I also understand the nuance. Yes. So going back to kind of a, a little while ago when you were talking about how you started, you know, you started working at SNL. 
How long were you in New York for? Well, I did SNL for one season, 1991. And that was kind of my swan song to PA. Mm. Uh, you know, it's a, good, it's a good place to say goodbye to that. Yeah. And cause then I was, I'd already been an AD. I'd already taken a step back to do that job for that year. And it's the irony is that I gave up so much money to go in that show. And then they offered me so much money to stay. Mm. So both times. Well, that must have been hard. So you're turning down a lot more money, like a couple times. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. But, but you know, it's like not a lot of people I don't think would have done that. Yeah. Because like, why am I going to give up, you know, this AD job with full network benefits and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I just knew that there was something more for me and I wasn't sure what it was. Mm. I really wasn't, you so know, you at left that without point. having like a, like your next step already planned. Well, first, yeah, <laughs> I did. Well done. Amazing. Well, because the show ended in May, right. you know, and I had gone to New York to live there for the show. Right. Uh, and, but I had always lived in LA. So of course I came home. Right. And then, um, and then I think we started doing own house or something. I can't ever remember what I did after SNL hmm. to be perfectly fair. When did you start getting into more like, um, like strict television shows, like starting to direct narrative narrative? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's actually an interesting story because what had happened was Bernie Mac had a show on HBO called Midnight Mac. It was a half hour late night. He hosted like a variety show. It was so fun. We shot it in Chicago and Bernie and I were very simpatico. Like we got on great. I think because we were both Libras, we're the exact same age and we grew up in the same exact time. So we had a lot of things in common, even though an African-American man and I'm a Mexican woman, we still had a lot of things in common. Right. I right? kind of get that. Yeah. Sometimes um, also not, I think people who are not white, sometimes just, it's just easier, right? Cause you're, you're looking at around and you're like, you, you get it kind of, I don't know. I feel like that a little bit. I've talked to other people where there's just this element of like, you know, you just get each other, maybe something in a way other people yeah, are not. Yeah, that is definite. Like you, there is a simpatico camaraderie with I think automatically with people of color. I would agree with that. Like, yeah. But anyway, so Bernie had done Kings of Comedy and he came on the Chris Rock show to promote that. And so I went back to see him and Teresa, his hair person, because I had done their show in Chicago. And I was so excited to see him. And so funny because Spike Lee was there reading the sports section, of course. And he's like, Spike, this was my director for my show for HBO. And Spike, like, hey, like right back to his paper. I'm like, oh my God, that's freaking Spike Lee. Like, I'm all excited. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Bernie then said to me, I'm like, so how do you go? How's everything going? Da, da, da. And he was telling me about his show. He's like, look, if that show goes, he goes, you're going to be on it. And so I, of course, call my agents all excited. Oh, yeah. And they're like, listen, you know, there's a process. We have to submit you to network. There's a whole approval. You know, if you do get on, it'll probably be the back nine. Like they hire new, they hire directors known and proven. And then on the back nine, they'll give a shot to somebody else because now they've got the tone set, right? Mm -hmm. Cut to, I get back from wherever the heck I was. I don't even know anymore. Mm -hmm. 
and I meet with Larry Wilmore. And the next thing I know, I'm in the second episode. And my agents are freaking out. Yeah. They're like, it's amazing. So I went on and and did a lot of prep and I, and I shadowed Ken Quapas, who was directing the pot, who had directed the pilot and was in the first episode the entire week he was shooting mm-hmm. while I was still prepping. Right. And I ended up doing probably a dozen shows. I became like one of the regular directors, go-to directors for Bernie Mac. Amazing. And that's really how I transitioned to narrative. Yeah. Bernie Mac, who I also think daily. Like I think all of these men, it's really interesting that I've had so many men champions. I've never had a female champion. I've heard that a lot. I've heard that that a lot about from females that. Yeah. I've never had a female champion. I remember once I was doing a, uh, I know what it was, the us festival. And I was just like a script person breaking down music and stuff. Right. And I remember like there was an AD breaking down script and I just kind of glanced over and she literally put her arm over so I couldn't see. And I remember that so distinctly. Boy, that was weird. You know what I'm saying? But I never really like, whatever, people are weird. But no, I've worked with some female producers. I can't even tell you. Like there's one very famous one and she's just an awful human and not a woman's woman. Mm. I you see. I've heard this a lot from people, especially, you know, do you find that it, it is then difficult to mentor younger women? I mean, obviously no. you're doing this podcast, but I mean, in general, cause sometimes I'll talk to older women. Oh. I'll be like, you know, it's sometimes hard for me to then mentor younger women because I remember that and I have to fight that. No, no, no. It's, I, it makes me want to do it more. Good. Oh, good. It I'm makes glad. me want to do it more. And it's interesting. I find like I'm on a panel with a bunch of women and it, it it's interesting how they, I'm not like other people in any way, shape or form. I don't have the same issues a lot of these people have. And they were talking about who's like your best friend on the crew. I get attached to the hip to my AD and I really, truly have been blessed knocking wood like with some really great ADs and, and one woman on the, I was like, Oh, well, I don't know about that. Like I've totally been railroaded and done it. And I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe it's because you're mean. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I've never had somebody not support me. Mm. I swear to you. I, maybe on one show, I had a super lazy AD and it did go super well, mm. but Overall. you know what, what are you going to do? I mean, I think also it's like our brain is, is trained. Like if we have a story in our head, everything's going to like, you know, come to that story. So if she's seeing the world that way, if she's seeing her ADs being, you know, whatever to her, I feel like she's only going to see that story, you know? Yeah. And which is sad because there's so much more out there. And, and honestly, it's like, I am grateful every day for Dick and Bruce, Bobby Dickinson, like Bernie, like all these people that really took a chance on me, mm. you know what I mean? And helped propel my career and confidence more than anything. Cause half of it is just having the confidence to know you're doing the right thing. True. You know, how often, and that takes the time that takes time. Yeah. How often do you feel like that imposter syndrome leaves you? Like how often are you thinking, you know, do you st- like, when did you stop sort of going like, Okay, I, I know I can do this. You know, Michelle, the past, yeah, still happening. <laughs> <laughs> it seriously is still happening. I'm not kidding you when I say that. It's like, am I going to get through this? Oh, can I do this? Yeah. And I tell you, my husband is always like, 
he goes, and he tells me this all the time. He's like, why do you always question yourself? Mm. So to be honest and fair, I learn something on every single show I do. Absolutely. Even on Yearly Departed, the show that I just did. I learned so much. <laughs> so much. I'm not going to lie. It's kind of an amazing show, though. The, the technical feat behind it, I'm very proud of. Yeah. So just a couple questions. I used to love the show, All That. I know back, you know, round Roundhouse and stuff, you started doing... So tell me a little bit about the All That days. Just that was, oh, my God. That was All like my favorite show for a long time. Oh, yeah. That was amazing. That was fun. I did a... Um, actually, I AD'd that live show for Bruce. And that young cat was amazing. So talented. So talented. We did the 100th show live on the air. Oh. And that was my first set up there. Like that was my first introduction. And then I did end up going back and doing a, a few. And I did Keenan and Kel, love. which was really cool. I mean, yeah. I love orange soda. So I still, I mean, that's like my preferred <laughs> soda. It's just such Mine a joke. Too. I just, that's all I do. So people say that uh, to me all the time. They always quote Keenan and Kel. Oh my God. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah that was like an amazing time because I was still pretty young learning still a lot, you know, and, and that was just really great. And that's actually when I really started to appreciate kids as talent. You know what I mean? Because I hadn't really done a lot of work with children up until then. It'd been mostly, you know, like concerts, music concerts, comedy concerts, things like that. Yeah. Big event type of things, you know? And that was like, I became like so obsessed with how talented they were, how yeah. they need to ask, like, where's my eye line? Like those kinds of things blow my mind. And, and I really enjoy being with children. I like that process. I like seeing them, you know, like find their moments. And I, I just think it's one of the most exciting. Things. And look at Keenan now, my God. I know longest reigning SNL cast member. God bless him. Amazing. Emmy winning, I think. Emmy winning, Keenan. Yeah. No, he's amazing. So, and a good guy. Good. Yeah, he seems like a good guy. Like even He is a good guy. He seems really nice to everybody. I love Even that. then, yes. Back good. then he was and yeah. Good. I'm glad because you know, he wasn't you know, he was a kid when he started and not that doesn't always that doesn't always go that way. Nick Cannon was on that. I mean, there's a lot of talented people. Yeah. Still super, super talented what they do now. Um, how is it coming in on like an already established show? We kind of talked a little bit about it when you were saying, you know, you have to identify tone, et cetera. And, and yeah, but like, you know, you've gone on to, to do episodes of like the Mindy project and blackish and the good place. And so you're coming in, you do one or two episodes and you leave. How is it coming into those shows? What is your process like? Well, I mean, it's, it does require a lot of research. Usually when I'm coming into a show, you just look at the pilot over and over and you look at whatever cuts they have to share. Yeah. I read every single script leading up to mine and what's happening if they have it, Mm because you don't know what, if you're setting something up. Right. And you really just prepare, prepare, prepare. It's all about that. Like watching those shows. One of my favorite things to do when I'm going in on shows that are new, like, cause I went in on like the fifth of scrubs like that was tough that was like i did more research on that show than ever before because i was coming in so late right and so what i did though was really kind of a cool process is i asked for certain scripts from each year Mm -hmm. and i would follow the script and watch the episode to see oh how did they pull the words off the page and come up with it and that was like an amazing tool for me 
really truly wow. I just took that and kind of had my own creative process with how to get what they're doing in my episode. And I ended up doing like seven, seven of those. And I even got a closing season, season closer, which is very hard to do. But Bill Lawrence usually directed the closers, you know, and he was getting a movie done or something happening. All of a sudden he couldn't do it. And it was actually Zach Braff who said, let's bring in Linda. She'll get done. Amazing. Yeah. So that was very cool. Wow. Oh, and visiting set, going down when you're like, go early, go to the set. I like to go when the set's opening up. How do they open up? How do they start? What's the first thing that happens? Because every set is different. Everybody has a different process. Everybody. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, going to set, doing set visits to watch how they set up scenes and how the crew works after that is uber important. Mm. What do you think has been some of the most uh, like, because you just, you've just seen so many of these great comedy shows. What are some of the best ensemble casts that you've seen that like stick out to you in your mind? Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Blackish, and Scrubs. Good ones. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, just astounding. I mean, there's tons of others. Mindy yeah, Project. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, right? I love Ike and Mindy. Like they're so, it's almost too numerous to enumerate, yeah. Michelle. You yeah. know what I mean? Because it goes on. That. Good place too. Yeah. Like, like that was talking about a great ensemble cast. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many. Like, yeah. I get that. I feel like if you're on the air for that long, there's a reason why. Like it, it yeah. has a lot to do with that. It was interesting about Brooklyn Nine-Nine ever so quickly because when I very first went there, I was talking to, you know, the um, the Stephanie Beatrice and Melissa Fumar, like saying how amazing it was that two Latinas were on the show. Yeah. And they said, yeah, after the table, we kind of commiserated together, like, who's going to make it? Like, they couldn't believe it themselves. Uh, and wow. that was so freaking cool. Yeah. So, so on that note, and I've, I've actually, I've spoken this uh, to an African-American director that I, I interviewed, but a friend of mine who's, who's Asian, he said that he once heard that like, like for a long time, it's changing now, obviously, but for a long time, he was like, if I heard that there was a prominent Asian character on a show, I knew they would never hire me because if you have, like, there was like the saying for a while, if you have two or more of an, of an Asian character, of someone of this nationality, of this ethnicity or this race, then it's, it's that show. It's an Asian show. It's a black show, right? That's how, that's how he was sort of taught for a while. Like if there's, if there's a couple people of the same race, then it's kind of like distinctly that show. So they'll never hire a second or a third person. Do you feel like you've seen that a lot or no? Well, Unfortunately, that's I, probably still true. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a An little exception. different. It's a much bigger, you know, it's a much bigger cast too and all of that. But yeah. But I do hate to say it. And that is one of my pet peeves is the like the miracle casting. Let's have one of these, one of these, one of these, one of these. I really like it is. How about if we just hire the people that are right for the roles? Yeah. You know, but Look, it's, it's just, changing, hopefully. It's you know, changing slowly right but surely. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I still think that we have problems with what is seen as, you know, people of color stories. Like they always seem to have to have a purpose. Yeah. As opposed to just be it's about just to be about exactly. 
you know, like they always have to have some dumb purpose for Latino films mm. and why, like why it's one of my pet peeves, but hopefully that'll change too. Do you have a particular film that you like looking forward that you would love to direct or some TV show or a show or program that you would love to see a story you would love to be told? Uh, I actually have quite a few of those. Any that you feel comfortable talking about? I mean, I understand you might want to keep some to, to yourself maybe. For yeah. There is one book by an author, a uh, Mexican author from Chicago that I want to adapt and, and license. And that would be probably like a dark, it'd be like dark comedy, super dark. Yes. Um, which would be like, that's kind of like what I hope will be my swan song. Ah. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. cause I really want to start touring colleges. And I did this one thing at Quinnipiac. I don't know, maybe some college students will be leaning to this. Um, but what I did was when I stopped doing stand up, I wrote a one woman show and I performed it at the Fringe Festival in Hollywood a few years back. And it's called Cursed My Road to Hollywood. And basically what I did at Quinnipiac is I worked with the film, TV and theater department and they staged my show. They shot it. Wow. They cut, like, it was really kind of cool. And so, and I was there with explaining why things happen and da, 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 da. So I did a workshop with them. Then I performed it that night. And um, then I did a Q&A after. It was so much fun. That's amazing. Yeah, it was really, really cool. Because it's all about how this Mexican girl from Detroit, who everybody thought was Chinese, made it as a working television director. That is not an easy thing to to do. It's not an easy feet to to accomplish. accomplish and you know there was a lot of i want to see that story i want to see along that story. the way yeah yeah it's actually pretty cool i performed it with another woman at uh, the cornelia street cafe in new york a couple years ago i hadn't done it in a while oh, you have it to bring really it back fun. here when all this is over i'd love to see that yeah when all that is over when all that is over uh, one more question about because uh, we're talking about casting and, and acting so how important is it for you to see authentic casting happening meaning like let's say someone like me i'm 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 told and i have my own thoughts on this but i i'm i'm very curious to hear yours so i I have an ethnically ambiguous look, as they say, and it's hard mm -hmm. for people to kind of pin down what my ethnicity is. And so I will often be not as much anymore because I've been, you know, just telling my, my representatives how I feel, but I'll get a lot of, you know, different ethnicities that I'm not. And so for instance, I remember I was, I was auditioning or I, I got the audition for a series regular for Vita, which is the story of Mexican Americans. And it's third generation Mexican-American. I didn't need to know Spanish. There was no like request for it to be authentic, but I wrote to my reps. I was like, I've thought about this. This is not, I'm not Mexican-American and, and it just feels wrong. You know, I, I, I'm not even sure how much they would have counted or they would have considered me. So I'm not trying to, but I, I turned down the audition, which is really hard to do, right? Is for anything, yeah. but it just didn't make sense. It just felt weird. And I kind of had to have that conversation. And I spoke to many people and some people were like, you're crazy, Michelle. It's a series regular role. Like, how could you? And other people were like, that's great. How do you feel as someone who is Mexican American to see, like, if you would have seen that someone who wasn't is cast in that, would that feel frustrating? You know, it's such a loaded question. Yeah. Like, 
I always, I do believe that you should try to cast authentically. But if somebody came in and nailed an audition, like why would you deny that person? Because as an actor, you're meant to, was, you know, like should Daniel Day Lewis not have pay, played a para, paraplegic? Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I understand and I respect that. And I really feel like when you can, you should. But sometimes people get a little crazy about it. I'm sorry. It's, they just get a little crazy about it. It's just kind of like, come on. You know, you're actors for a reason. You're, yeah. you're, you're chameleons. You know, yeah. you're meant to change. You're meant to be somebody who you're not. And oftentimes that causes self-exploration. And is that a bad thing? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, it's almost like damned if you do and damned if you don't. That's how I feel. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, all you can do is the best you can do. If you saw a role that was maybe, you know, ethnically ambiguous, you know what I'm saying? That you knew you could get your teeth in. Like, why wouldn't you take that opportunity? Yeah. You know, life is about opportunities. Life is about chances given to you and what you do with those opportunities and chances. And I th often think that a lot of times people have misconstrued ideas of right and wrong based on some weird, rigid thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't really understand that. Mm -hmm. And this is a coming from somebody who grew up being tortured because of the way she looked. Like seriously, when I was born in Detroit, there were not many people that looked like me. They were white or black. And then there was me. And it was often, I could not find a place to be comfortable to be myself. It took me a very long time to find myself. I'm quite a late bloomer. You know, I didn't even get into this business till my mid twenties. You know, I went to school for something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, those are all interesting questions. And, you know, so far from God is about a Mexican family. But if I find a Colombian girl who can play the role of one of those daughters beautifully, am I going to deny her that? No. And I'll fight to the bitter end about it. At least she's Latin. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Thank you so much. I mean, having you on is just such an honor. I really, really appreciate it. I feel like I've learned so much from you. I feel like this is going to be so informative for people. I mean, I'm really trying to, to target an audience of people who not only are interested in entertainment generally, but people who either want to get in or are trying to pivot in this, you know, crazy time and figure out what their next step is. And yeah. I find that like, you know, these type of journeys are so important for people to, to learn from, you know, yeah. just don't ask those questions a lot so yeah true so thank you you're so michelle i really enjoyed my time with you oh, thank God. you I'm glad. and i really appreciate it you're wonderful you're so inspirational i really appreciate it and uh and have a wonderful day have a wonderful weekend yeah and i'll let you know about yearly departed please because yeah. that we did talk about it so it'll be kind of nice yeah absolutely. and the, the producer is mrs mazel rachel brosnahan oh i forgot to even mention that Yearly Departed, don't forget Amazon executive producer Rachel Brasnahan, which is pretty cool. And we have like Tiffany Haddish, Sarah Silverman, like the lineup is wow. insane. Yes, Phoebe Robinson hosts. It's pretty Amazing. incredible. I, I yeah. love that you really, you're really sort of, you put together so many wonderful, especially funny women. 
I've noticed that a lot, you know, even just with they ready. I mean, that's different people, but still. Yeah, but and that was actually that's, all Tiffany. They ready was all Tiffany giving yeah. opportunities to this women, it's which so I love. It's so wonderful. It was it was amazing. And uh yeah, no, it was great. It's really gonna be a great special. I'm super excited about it. I'm excited it. about it too. Okay, right on Michelle. Take care. Have a great rest of your lovely well. weekend. All right. I hope you enjoyed meeting Linda Mendoza. She's fantastic. Ah, guys, again, thank you so much for being on this journey with me. This has been such an incredible season. 21 episodes. 21. Thank you guys so much. This has been amazing. I want to read our last review of this season from Miss BK2020, a masterclass for anyone looking to get into entertainment and media. This show is a pure masterclass for those who are or want to be in the industry. Michelle's questions are so insightful. I listened to her interview, Damon Lee, October 2020, and was so impressed with the conversation and her style of interviewing, subtle and not overpowering. (laughs) Great question about Damon's support system during the John Singleton Joel Silver days. The story about how Obsessed was made was mind-blowing. She really guided the conversation with her industry knowledge. Her usage of entertainment facts is so on point. Listen for the Denzel reference and others. Your show is definitely a learning lesson for anyone looking to get into entertainment, media, and creative. Thank you so much, Miss BK2020. I really, really love that inter- that that review. I appreciate it so much. It's a great way to end the season. Thank you, guys. I'm going to be, again, giving you some bonus episodes and giving you some great content before starting up even bigger and better in season two. Thank you to all of my amazing mentors for coming on this season. I've learned so much. Our audience has learned so much. We're just so, so grateful. Thanks, guys, for joining us on Mentors on the Mic. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend you know would love it. Let me know what you learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram, at Mentors on the Mic. I will be sharing even more information about our mentors there. These are crazy times, and now more than ever, it's so important to connect. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it, and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating on iTunes. Every week, I'm choosing a review to read on an episode. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. Thanks. Thanks.